0: The difference between shelf and self is like kind of a small gap because the things that you accumulate, the things that you collect, speak to who you are, the things that you make a kind of intentional choice to purchase or to say you enjoy or to like or bookmark or collect is an indication of what you're interested in and kind of as a derivative of that, like who you are.
1: Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of unstoppable domains and the go to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GM, GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host. Today, we're going to talk about all things Web3 identity with Jad, co-founder and CEO of Kudos. Jad, thanks for coming on the pod. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: I get stoked every time we have really identity-focused conversations because it's one of the most interesting aspects of Web3 and NFTs right now. And I've just done a lot of thinking about how our online lives are changing and how NFTs are going to be a big catalyst for that. So I think you're going to provide just a lot of good thinking around how we should approach the topic and how we should think about how we're building this digital identity for ourselves. So you know, let's just start off the bat with having you talk us through how you got into crypto and how that led to you really focusing on this concept of digital identity and NFTs and collection.
0: Yeah, for sure. So. I grew up writing poetry online anonymously. It was a very big part of my childhood. I moved around a lot as a kid, grew up in like a mixed family and turned to the internet as a way of figuring out who I was. And the way I did that was creating content, so I'd put out poetry, people would read it, they'd reach out and made a lot of friends online growing up. And I share that at the outset because for me, the internet's always been a place for identity exploration and connection. Despite that background writing poetry, went to school for engineering and graduated and spent most of my early career at YouTube working with creators and artists. My focus was, how do you get creators to create more interesting content and kind of sort of lower the friction for people to create? And I focused mainly on remixing features. So kind of taking the large expanse of content that's on YouTube as sort of like fodder or like a seed for you to create something new. So I've always been very interested in this idea of open content, of you being able to take anything online and sort of anything that resonates that you feel speaks to you and sort of like build on it and create something new out of it. And so, you know, after leaving YouTube, moved to the U.S., spent some more time in academia and really got to research sort of the decentralized web and how it's changing social spaces and creative tools at the Berkman Klein Center which is the Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. And I was very interested in the DeWeb web movement, the decentralized web movement that sort of like came before Web3, if you will, the original kind of movement to kind of take us back to a web that isn't centralizing power with a few platforms. And so when the whole movement around people being interested for an alternative to kind of the current model of the internet came about with Web3. I became very interested, moved from just writing and building experiments in the space to actually building a company in the space. So that's sort of been my, my journey so far.
1: Cool. Yeah, we'll definitely get into what you're building in Web3 with kudos. But I'll say when you mentioned how you're working at YouTube around the remixing of content, I feel like some of these remix tools... And maybe I'm not as familiar with some of the ones on YouTube. I think the one I'll give a shout out to off the bat is the TikTok stitching or duetting. It's like the concept of composability, but we're just seeing it in the form of media and some of the, the apps that we're able to use. Just being able to take some piece of content and transport it and make a, a new remixed version with really a couple of clicks. It's never been easier today to remix content. And I'm excited to see how we get into that with NFTs too. I've seen some building blocks. I've seen some ex- a lot of great experiments, but uh right now I feel like derivative projects are the closest thing sometimes we see to that remix nature of, of in NFTs.
0: Totally, yeah. TikTok's a great example of taking like a bass unit, like the song that inspires you to create like a dance or create some content based on it and to kind of attribute the original song, the original artist, and you can like click through on that artist and song and like see it the expanse of like content that's sort of derivative of that original piece that unit of media and i think that kind of is a very very interesting example of composability the power of kind of attributing someone else that created something interesting that inspired you and having them also amass some level of like signal for how interesting that thing is so yeah it's a great example
1: And I'll even go, I actually have a Web3 example that popped up in my head too. And and then I want to get into some more questions around what Web3 means to you. But uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Lenster. The Lens Protocol, Lenster is a decentralized app on it. And uh, Lenster is kind of like decentralized Twitter. So you can put up a post and you can, if people retweet it, or it's called mirroring over there, you can set royalties based on if, if someone like collects your post, and it's a paid post to collect, and someone collects it from a share, they get a percentage of the royalties. So I thought that was kind of an interesting way of... It's not necessarily remixing content, but it allows you to share that base content and still get rewards for it being found through you, for you being the curator. And so that's a, a little bit of another remix piece that I think is touching on some of those concepts. Not necessarily composability, but it's close. It, it seems close, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, just one one more thing on this before we jump to the next question, which is like linked data, the kind of concept of bidirectional linking came up in the very beginning of the internet. There's like a W3C consortium and like working group that's focused on like, how do we think about bidirectional linking or like being able to attribute other places where this content is coming up? And so yeah, kind of this question of composability and like linked data has existed for a very long time. And it's it's really interesting that it's becoming a part of common language and like what people find interesting with the rise of Web3.
1: Yeah. Okay, cool. Linked data. That's that's a good term for me to think about when I see that kind of feature. I wasn't really sure how to put it in a non Lenster terminology. So, okay, good to know. So, I want to now talk about digital identity. And I I read your blog post from shelf to self. And it was so good. I got a lot of quotes that I think I'm going to reference during this next segment of the pod. But just to start off, what does Web3 mean to you?
0: Yeah. So for me, Web3 is based primarily on the premise that there's an alternative to exploiting users for data to make money. And that instead of like having closed platforms that are sucking data out of us, that there is a world where our data is our own and that we can take it with us between platforms. And a lot of this might be based on blockchain-based technologies, but it might not be. So I think in general that Web3 will be successful because the number three is what's after the number two. Like what comes after Web2, it's Web3. It's not necessarily because of blockchain-based technologies, I think. Although there's a high likeliness that kind of like energy and momentum and people that are thinking about how decentralized tech and blockchains play into social space and creative tools will be the people that sort of cause this shift and bring about this next iteration of the web. I wouldn't attribute it specifically to this technology that we've become very excited about.
1: Mm, Makes sense. It felt like Web3 was just a rebrand and also a helpful one, right? Like crypto has a perception to it. Web3 felt fresh and new. But I definitely feel like we're seeing more adoption of, of the term Web3. And and I do think it's helping crypto a little bit. Even thinking about how Reddit's... I don't know if you're familiar with the the news Reddit's been on recently. They launched collectibles, a wallet, and they're getting a lot of recognition for basically not using any crypto lingo within their marketing. And I don't know if that's why their NFT drop has been so successful, but it's definitely a factor.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think for a long time, there was a school of thought that like, we need to kind of build consumer applications that force people to engage with a technology because it's important for them to understand the inner workings of crypto and blockchain. I didn't agree with it too much. And I think that the sort of the school of thought starting to shift back to not necessarily focusing too much on the technology, but what it enables. And like, when you're using an app, you're not thinking of where it's hosted. You're not thinking of like how you're authenticating in necessarily. I think it's important to educate the user on how their data is being used or like kind of the underlying workings to an extent. But it's I, I don't necessarily think that using technical terminology and like having them have to remember their backup code and like kind of do all the complicated stuff was a necessary thing yeah, or is a necessary thing for consumer applications in this world.
1: Yeah. So given that they are using these applications, though, it's now allowing us to do tons of cool stuff. And that one that we're really focusing on today is building up your digital identity. So how are you thinking about what that means and how we're doing it?
0: Yeah. The metaphor that I use most often here is your bedroom. And if you think about your bedroom as your own space where you feel like you can, where it feels like a sanctuary, it feels like your own little hub with all your things. It's where you have your like closet, with your clothes, your bookshelf with all your books, your vinyl collection with all like the vinyl that you've accumulated. It's a place where you can choose to invite people to come into the space And if they come into the space and browse through your bookshelf and see the books that you're interested in. And maybe if it's someone that's really close, you'll like show them what's in your closet, but it's probably private. What's in your drawer next to your bed, that's probably quite private. Like that space speaks to your identity in many ways. And so in the piece around like your shelf, the difference between shelf and self is like kind of a small gap because the things that you accumulate, the things that you collect speak to who you are, the things that you make a kind of intentional choice to purchase or to say you enjoy or to like or bookmark or collect is an indication of what you're interested in and kind of as a derivative of that, like who you are. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I think about it.
1: I got to share two quotes that stood out for me that related to this from the blog post. And the first one is all of these represent a physical manifestation of who we are what we are and how we want those closest to us to perceive us i thought that was really well said and the second one was self and shelf are only one letter apart and i i thought that was really really clever and and, you know i i don't think that who knows actually maybe you know the latin definition of self comes from shelf but that's made me think of that and it's just interesting how we start collecting stuff and nfts have been really the first time personally i've started collecting and i'm starting to think about what my collection says about me it's tough too cuz some of the things i wish were in my collection that i wish i had to say about me maybe are out of my price range or just not things i not things i own but it's for the first time i'm really thinking about how i'm curating my digital profile versus on facebook it's i'm one person of me on instagram i'm another on linkedin i'm another and all these are separate me's, but I don't have one central hub for what my is. And so when you think about collecting and putting things on your shelf, what is your shelf in the Web3 world? Is it your wallet address? Or I mean, at Unstoppable, we're, we're thinking about Web3 identity, starting with your NFT domain because your domain name can link to multiple wallet addresses.
0: What is your Web3 shelf? Yeah, it could be your wallet. I think the abstraction of that is it's your decentralized identifier, and that could be some form of, you know, NFT domain. It's whatever that connects to. I think, you know, in the world that I occupy and what we're working on, we think of it as that space where you are making attestations. You're saying, I really enjoy this. This is an extension of who I am. Like, I'm collecting it. I'm adding my own context or take on it. And bring it into a space that, as a whole, the aggregate describes me is sort of like who I am. And you know, if I were to kind of like take a step back a little bit and think about like how do we construct our identities in the real world beyond just collecting in a bedroom? I use that metaphor. I think it's the things that we experience that shape us, but also the interest and taste that we develop over time. And so, like, I grew up in a mixed household. I moved around a lot as a kid. My parents influenced me. My community influenced me. Those experiences shaped my identity. But so did the interests that I started to kind of gather over time. Like I love music. I love writing. I've started to love coffee and coffee culture. And like those shape me. And when people think of me, they're like, oh, it's that guy who makes lists of cafes in different cities. Like it becomes a part of who I am. And so, you know, in that vein, is there a way for us to kind of aggregate the totality of who we are through our experiences online and sort of the things that we collect or the things that we're interested in and like the taste that we formed. Today, that's Facebook, right? It's Facebook and the Facebook organization, everything that comes under it, where they have a view of who we are through our experiences online and like what we say we like based on how much time we spend on each piece of content or what we say we like, what we comment on, and engage with. And so that view Becomes who we are in many ways.
1: Yeah. And you definitely alluded here to how, and I mentioned it too, there's there's a lot of versions of us. And you mentioned Facebook and Facebook definitely was the first time. I mean, maybe there's other points in history, but Facebook is, in my experience, the first time I really started building out this online identity. And I want to know that is how we start putting our identities on all these different platforms. They're disparate right now. They're disconnected. Is it changing how we present ourselves versus when you have this shelf that you can put all your stuff on and you're not limited to the platform? Do you feel like you're bringing a more true self there versus who you are on Facebook and the other places that we do have some kind of form of identity around in the Web2 world?
0: I think it's important that we have spaces where we can present different parts of ourselves because we have many parts. And, you know, I think right now the kind of like other way of thinking about it is when I, like me as Jad, walking into the office versus walking into a bar with my friends, I present differently, but I'm the same person in both spaces. You know, I contain the same cells and the same interests and, I'm, and the same identity kind of in both, but I present differently. I might dress differently. I might behave differently. I might have different conversations. I'll perform differently in those spaces. And so the same thing applies online. On Facebook, I'll perform very differently to Twitter, to my OnlyFans or whatever. And like I'll I'll present differently in all those spaces. But at the end of the day, I am not all those separate people. I am like one kind of unit that connects them all.
1: So I feel like what we're getting to here is in Web2, you do have different platforms and you do present differently on them. That's not necessarily a bad thing. In Web3, you can have a central identity where all your collectibles, all your data is in one spot, and then you can bring that to the platforms where you want to present. And so the difference here is ownership, right?
0: Totally. You can decide to provision in data into those specific spaces. You have control over what part of you comes out like you do in the real world. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: So we just talked a lot about NFT identity, digital identity. And as I was listening to that, I had a thought and it was just, if I'm a skeptic, if I'm a Web3 skeptic, I'm not sure about all this. I feel like the digital identity I currently have on Web2 social media platforms is suitable enough. And I'm asking the question, why do we need this? Why do
0: we need this version of Web3 identity? What do you have to say to that? I wouldn't say it's like a binary of this or that. I think it's important that a choice exists and the choice of users being able to own their data or a portion of their data is going to be really important. On the level of the average user, whether that data is stored in like a centralized server and is controlled by an organization, I don't think is going to be a core decision factor for them about using the service or the service. But... It's going to be really important downstream, I think, that there, there's a lot of momentum in the direction of data ownership. Like, One is lack of trust in centralized organizations, institutions, and platforms, sort of on the level of society. If you ask people if you can choose between owning your data or not owning your data, which would you choose? I think they'd vote for owning data or just because people like ownership over not owning stuff. Legally, like the EU with GDPR and like all the kind of movement, regulatory movement towards giving more control back to the user, I think is forcing a lot of platforms in that direction as well. But I think the real power will come downstream when there's more utility for owning your data. Like if your data is interconnected, like who you are on Spotify and who you are on Instagram and who you are on Twitter is connected and controlled by you, then... That might even lead to it in a direction where there's even better personalization in apps, where you're not siloed into kind of these different parts of yourself, but you are your full self. And that utility, I think, will drive us in a direction where developers will make the choice of enabling users to own their data because it's going to be more valuable for them downstream. So I think that's that's where it comes in. At the end of the day, it's, it's kind of a choice at this point.
1: 100%. I mean, it allows you to... Like you said, bring your full self to be able to bring the pieces of data you want to the table. But when you talk about utility, I mean, that directly hits on something that we're thinking about a lot at Unstoppable. We just passed the 500 milestone in terms of integrated partners and the opportunities for how you can attach on-chain and off-chain data and bring it to each one of these partners and how that changes your user experience or the promotions or rewards you're offered. It's so vast. I mean, every integration changes the opportunity for what data you can bring to the table. And I think for users, that's really exciting. Totally. I want to transition a little bit into now talking about your thoughts on progressive decentralization. So we've talked about identity. And, and I think when we were talking pre-recording, you kind of felt like this was, that was starting at the top, right? And now, taking it to progressive decentralization, open content. What does progressive decentralization mean? And how should we be thinking about that when we're operating in this Web3 space?
0: Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about sort of the centralized versus decentralized approach to building companies in the space. And a lot of you folks tend to think that it's like a binary. It's like either fully centralized or fully decentralized.
1: Yeah, it's a spectrum.
0: It's a spectrum, like most things. And yeah, it's definitely not all or nothing. And I think the approach that I subscribe to that I'm really interested in is this idea of like application-based protocol development. So starting with an app and then sort of like progressing down to a broader protocol. And in doing that, a big challenge I've had is, you know, how do we architect the stack Do we architect it sort of based on like centralized storage or decentralized storage and kind of at the beginning, pre-product market fit? How do we think about like financing and resourcing? Do we have like a carved out treasury for like a downstream sort of like community that helps govern? Is there a community that helps govern decisions around product or what goes on? Do we have a core team or do we have bounties where like there's a decentralized engineering organization? Are we in person or are we remote? Like being remote is kind of decentralized. What are the kind of like decentralizable units that we need to kind of have in place in the early stages? And how do we think about sort of the milestones if we do really believe in a future that should be decentralized that we need to be hitting? And kind of what are those milestones and what are the the units that we can like decentralize first? So sort of like thinking about it quite systematically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking back to some previous pod discussions. In one episode, I talked to someone named Yuri from SuperDAO, and he really opened my mind to how to think about decentralization from the perspective of, like, decentralization is a whole playbook, and you choose which play you want to run. That really helped me reframe some of my thinking around it. And then I talked to another guest, and he was kind of breaking down sufficient decentralization, like we just have to hit sufficient decentralization, but that was really from a legal perspective. And now I'm hearing you talk about progressive decentralization, and I'm wondering, of all the things you covered, is there something you can point to that's really important to decentralize versus
0: other activities where it isn't so much needed? It really depends on the context. I think it's important to like realize how important is something being decentralized to your core value proposition? Are you building for developers as your persona, the user, really only going to build on something that's decentralized? Like thinking about the core value proposition, your users, and like kind of building from there, but also like projecting out. You know, if you do want to get to a state where this is sort of like steady state, decentralized state of the company, how are you working towards that? What do you need to kind of architect today in order for you to get there? In general, pre-product market fit, I think it's really important to get to like stable state. And like in many cases, that does mean some level of centralization. Like that might mean, you know, having a core team that's sort of in person, like hacking on things together before you start decentralizing aspects of your core team. But if we think about remote work as one example of preparing for a remote work There were teams that were better positioned for that. They had better documentation. They thought about what it might look like to live in a world that's completely remote. And COVID sort of forced that world upon us, while other slower companies that didn't have really good documentation, didn't have good practices, were sort of, you know, left behind in a way. So good example or parallel to what it might look like to prepare for a decentralized web or decentralized world.
1: For sure. Yeah, when I was talking with Matt Gould, the CEO at Unstoppable on a previous episode, we talked about how we're really focused on is making a decentralized product like the NFT domain that sits in, you mint it, sits in your wallet, it's yours. And it's the smart contracts that right now aren't all fully decentralized. And we're working there. But right now, keeping them in house allows us as a startup to make decisions fast to build the products and feature set that we, we we see as most important right now and also to get integrations because integrations are really what's going to allow this to be potentially an identity of yours in the Web3 world. So very interesting thing about what you decentralize at first, what happens over time, but at the core, if the product you're building is decentralized as an NFT, I think that is, that, that's really the starting point. And also just to throw out there This might be a good question for you. Do you know how many times decentralization is mentioned in the Bitcoin white paper?
0: No idea. How many times?
1: Zero. It's mentioned zero times the word decentralization, which is just interesting because its security is much more of a concern than decentralization. Obviously, decentralization is one of the ways you get the security, but that word is not mentioned. So it's it's interesting how we have that conversation so much on Twitter and, and whatnot. But uh, in the white paper, the thing that started it all, it's not mentioned.
0: I was just going to add one thing, which is, I think there are a lot of companies as well that tend to say that they're going to be decentralized and they remain decentralized on paper and not really on practice. And so there's also this element of like, I don't think people know how to navigate towards a decentralized state or have a, a kind of like a fixed meaning for what that is and sort of throw it around almost as a like a status signal or as a promise that's not kept. And so the piece that I'm currently like writing and thinking about is this idea of like, what does it look like in practice? When do you move the slider to become more and more decentralized? What are the components that you need to think about? So it's a work in progress, but I think that's sort of what I'm trying to address for myself and hopefully for other builders as well.
1: Yeah. And is there anything you want to share around protocol versus product when it comes to, to building?
0: Yeah, oh, that's a hard question for so many builders. I'm talking to a lot of builders today that are thinking about how do we allocate resources across protocol development or kind of like interface layer building. And you know, if you're building protocol first, the challenge then becomes how do you aggregate developers to sort of like build on top of your infrastructure? And so like, allocating resources to that versus further protocol development, or if you're working on an app or kind of like an interface, like a core layer, app layer thing, are you thinking about extending down the stack and like developing a broader protocol? And if so, when do you do that shift? Because building a really great consumer app is very hard. And so like, if you want to crack that and then crack kind of the protocol layer, um, that's like trying to hit two birds with one stone.
1: Yeah. What is an example of a protocol right now, too, just to set that definition?
0: Yeah, I mean, if we think about like in the world of social, like Lens, or if you think about the app protocol that Blue Sky just launched, that's a great example of like starting with infrastructure and sort of like getting developers to build on top of it versus a good example of app first two protocols like Farcaster, which started with like a client, like an official client or flagship app and has open source components and like infrastructure that developers can use to build other apps on top of that core infrastructure too. Mm. There are two very different approaches that people are taking. And sort of the resource allocation question then becomes, how do we think about like where the team is focused? How do we think about what we're investing in? You're sort of bifurcating the company in many ways by focusing on the two. Yeah. So kind of a very, very common question I find among builder communities.
1: Very interesting. Yeah. Farcaster and Lens are definitely going at it right now. Both seeing I'm seeing really positive things online about both of them. So cool to think about the difference in approaches. I'm actually gonna have Stanny from Ave and Dan from Farcaster on the pod next month. So I'm looking forward to seeing those two keep progressing. And now that we've had this conversation, I'll be sure to also keep an eye out for the difference in how they're building. Well, cool. Good talk here. Let's go one more layer down. So we, we talked about identity. We talked about some of the protocol development and, and, and progressive decentralization. Now that leads us down the funnel to reputation systems. So you wrote an article on reputation a while back. I loved it. I think you set the stage for how people are thinking about reputation in this space. But what led you to write this piece? And how are you thinking about reputation in, in Web3 today?
0: So I wrote this piece with Scott Commoners, who I know was on on your podcast too. Yes, shout out to Scott. Yeah, big shout out to Scott. And we wrote it as a reaction to what we were seeing in the space, which was when token, right? Like, and and like launch token at initiation or like at start of project and the speculative like downstream impact that, that that had and sort of the eventual shutdown of many of these projects. And so... We were reflecting on what is sort of the cadence again, or like ordering or sequencing of how you might think about these reputation systems or these token systems for various projects. And so what we developed was essentially this framework around a two-token system, one non-transferable that's based on your contributions and the second is sort of a transferable token that's sort of like spun out from that non-transferable token that, that's sort of assigned based on your contributions. And the sequencing really relies on where you're at in the progress of the project. At pre-product market fit stage, where you're still figuring out so the core components, if there's no intrinsic motivation to contribute in the, in the project or in the system, it doesn't make sense to introduce a financial token. And so we were talking about sort of starting with a reputation token and introducing one further down the line when there's some stable state, proven intrinsic motivation to contribute. So that was sort of what the piece was, was explaining. We go in much more de- into much more depth. And I think the last thing I'll share here was we relied a lot on precedent. Like if you think about games, games have points and coins. A lot of them, they might call them different things, but points are things you aggregate based on your contributions, how well you're playing the game. And... With your points, you can get these coins that you can spend in the economy. Like you can buy shields or whatever for you, for yourself, for your character in the game. And you know you might be able to transfer these coins to other folks as well. Like you can gift them to your friend for their birthday. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what it was. What was also modeled on. Like there's a lot of precedent for this. It's not an entirely new framework. We just sort of like shaped it for for the current use case.
1: Yeah, going back to your when token comment that kicked this all off. That was definitely ha- happening for months in like 2021. Every project launched, dropped a token. Now, do you see that as being really detrimental to kicking a project's... What's the right way to frame it? Is just dropping a token and giving it to the user base detrimental to the, like, the long-term success because it's not really given out based on someone's actual contributions? You know, It's kind of just given out to anyone who maybe is a holder or of something, but maybe they haven't made contributions that were beneficial to the long-term success of the project, and they're just here for short-term gains.
0: You know, I don't want to make a generalized statement, because there might be very specific use cases where that is important, but in general, in social systems, that is probably uh, a bad idea, because it creates, like, extrinsic motivation to contribute that's not really based on real interest or need, in, like, you're not necessarily serving a need for them other than like, you know, number go up. And maybe that is sort of the need that you're trying to build for. And maybe that is what the product is. But in many cases, that wasn't the intention. So for those types of projects, that's the wrong approach. You're not really like, helping solve a core need for that person. They're not intrinsically motivated and contributing in the system. So it, it, it's a flawed approach. Yeah, that makes sense. I I feel like I read a lot of stuff talking
1: about the cold start problem and how it addresses that, and that makes sense to me. But it sounds like while that does address that problem, there's other problems that it kind of brings into the fold, just in terms of your community, your user base, why they're there, why they're participating. Maybe my last question uh, around reputation and, and and identity is that if there were like three pieces of data that you'd like to see tracked for people's reputation and identities across our Web3 ecosystem, whether that's on-chain data that you associate with your digital identity or off-chain, what pieces would you like to see brought into the fold?
0: So I will caveat this by saying that it's not necessary that data is on-chain. Most data shouldn't be on-chain. But what I do think is important is media metadata. Media metadata meaning like understanding factually what this thing is like this thing this URI this link is referencing this song from this artist like that's really important media metadata that should be publicly queryable and is currently very difficult to query i think the other one is general like sentiment or context around media like this is what the impact of this piece or this is what people think about this piece on an aggregated level whether that's on-chain or off-chain is I'm uncertain about, but should be quite easily accessible. And then the last thing, which I think is really important, and this should definitely be off chain, is any form of interest or taste data around users, where they're able to port that in or provision that into apps and get personalized experiences and get sort of like full control over what's going on in that specific uh, instance. So those those are three.
1: Yeah, no, love it. I appreciate you throwing that out there. I'm just, I'm very curious and thinking about what those pieces of data will, will see tracked are. I also don't believe that it has to just be on-chain data. Definitely off-chain data. There's so many interesting use cases for how bringing off-chain data, attaching it to your digital identity, and then being able to go out onto the internet can have significant impacts on the way we do things. But then for on-chain data, just right now we're looking at simple wallet transactions. How can we give badges out to people for... Doing certain on-chain activities, whether that's minting a a certain collection, hitting a certain threshold or milestone in trading, being an early user of ADAP, is interesting to see how you can just tap into these smart contracts, look at the transaction history and use almost the transaction history as being able to give certifications for doing something. And right now we're giving those in the form of badges, but I do know that's going to become much more mature over time. Before we get to the 1-2-Web3 segment of the pod, I do want to ask and or give you the chance to share what you're working on at Kudos and how that kind of relates to the whole conversation where we've been talking about too. I know we kind of talked about the blog post, but didn't necessarily dive into what you're building there.
0: Yeah, for sure. So we're very interested in open content, open interest graphs and taste graphs. And so what we're working on specifically as essentially a form of a digital bedroom where you can collect things that you like from across the web with your own commentary and context. So you can think of it as like a media wallet. So that's the core app, the flagship app that's sort of live in closed beta right now with a few thousand users actively using it every week. And we are very interested in how this might kind of move down into a broader application or protocol that we're calling MediaGraph one that we you know we don't believe in protocols that are controlled by one company but rather a consortium or collective of companies and the main thing we're trying to solve for there is two things so one is content that's like open content so you're you being able to understand what this media references so the media metadata example that i referenced earlier so this link this uri references this song from this artist and this is general sentiment on this unit of media and that sort of is in the direction of helping us get to a point where users are able to transition or move around their interest and taste between apps. So kind of making that possible or easier for app developers. So that's sort of what we're trying to solve for on Meteor Graph.
1: Awesome, no great breakdown. Definitely excited to see you keep building and we'll keep an eye out for when it comes out of the closed beta. All right, well, let's wrap up. Let's do the one, two, web three. First question I got for you is, who's an influential web three creator, entrepreneur or collector? that's really inspired or educated you?
0: I wouldn't necessarily describe them as a Web3 creator, but as a decentralized web creator or thinker. So Doc Searles, who's been thinking about this stuff for a very long time and runs sort of the identity workshop that has been focused on this question of decentralized identities for a very long time.
1: Mm, Great answer. I haven't heard that one before. I'm definitely going to look them up and do some more research on their background. And question two, what's your favorite NFT?
0: I don't necessarily have one. I don't think we've got to a point where I feel a lot of psychological ownership over NFT. I feel like it's a real extension of my identity. I feel like a lot of what I associate with tends to be stuff that's still centralized.
1: Mm. Gotcha. Okay.
0: The question three
1: is in five years, what's the craziest thing that we'll be doing in the metaverse that people just aren't thinking about yet?
0: Definitely not working in virtual offices which is i think what the oculus sort of direction is yeah i think if you're long distance like virtual dating just feels like it's just obvious sort of being in the same space as your partner
1: yeah virtual dating i feel like for some reason i haven't thought of that actually that is definitely something people aren't thinking about yet and that makes a lot of sense the internet dissolves geography and so if we can learn from people across the globe, why wouldn't we also date them? So that'd be crazy. Long distance relationships take it to a whole new level. Well, this was an awesome conversation, Jed. Thank you for providing your perspective on identity with us. Can you let us know for anyone who is listening and wants to go find you, connect with you afterwards, or can they find you on the internet?
0: Yeah. So I'm on Twitter, Jed underscore AE you can follow my newsletter or blog, which is blog.kudos.com.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening to the Unstoppable Podcast. I appreciate you for being here with us and spending time listening to our conversations. Please, if you enjoyed today's episode, drop a like, subscribe wherever you're listening. It really helps us keep growing. I'll catch you next week with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. And I'll see you in the metaverse. Peace out. Bye. Bye. you've enjoyed this episode of the unstoppable podcast if something we said today resonated with you please leave us a review subscribe and share this with your friends and remember this conversation doesn't have to end here tweet us your questions thoughts and ideas to unstoppable web i look forward to hearing from you and thank you so much for listening